All right, so it looks like most of the kids have, have evacuated to Kids Connect. Um, so if you would go and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30 today. <clears throat> we're going to start by reading the first half of the passage. So we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 30. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. He says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negeb, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on their backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels, to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found, with which to take fire from the hearth and to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon our horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you that you are in control of all things. That you control the planets in their orbits around the sun. You control gravity and and the temperature of the core of the earth. You control the rate at which the earth spins on its axis. And we thank you that you are in the little things too. That you know the number of all the hairs on our head. You know the function of every cell in our body. That you are fully in control and that you are capable and that you are good. 
God, I pray today that as we look at your word together, as we look at um, this, this announcement uh, of judgment that you make on Judah as, as stubborn children, God, I pray that we would see you as a God who is just, but also as a father who is loving and gracious to your children. We thank you that you did send Jesus and that he was the perfect son. He obeyed where we couldn't. He died in our place and that he rose again and he's with us. I thank you for the grace the amazing, uh, unintelligible grace you show us in Christ. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So, for the last two weeks, we were in Isaiah 28 and 29, and those passages are all about the kind of current crisis that's happening in, in Judah. It's been kind of building and building throughout the book of Isaiah. And then when we get to 28 and 29, it kind of comes to a head. And what's happening is their leaders are foolish and they're corrupt and they're leading the people astray. And because of that, God says he's going he's gonna to judge them. He's going to pour out judgment. And so it's moved from judgment kind of being this warning that's a, that's a potential thing in the future to it being a probable thing in the near future. Uh, and so what, what, this, is, this is the crisis. This is what they're facing. And chapters 30 and 31 are about how they're going to deal with that crisis. And 30 and 31 give us the wrong solution to the crisis. And he's going to come back in, in 32 and 33, and he's going to give us the right solution. He's going to give us God's solution to this problem that they're facing in the nation. So what's happening here in chapter 30 is God is kind of rebuking his people as stubborn children. But what we're going to see in the second half that we haven't read yet is that he gives them grace as well. So he starts by saying, ah, stubborn. This is, this is not a, a happy statement about them. This is God lamenting. This isn't like, ah, I just had a good idea. This is like, ah, my stubborn kids who, who don't listen to me. And he tells us why. They, they carry out a plan. That's not his plan. Uh, they make an alliance, but, but not one that his spirit leads them to make. They go down to Egypt without asking for God's direction. They're trying to take Pharaoh or take refuge in, in, in Pharaoh's protection. And there's, there's two problems with this. This, this, we're going to go down to Egypt. I mean, obviously there's all the stuff that Isaiah just said that it's, it's not God's will for them. It's not his plan. But the two, the two main problems are first, that them going to Egypt is, is effectively them committing spiritual apostasy. Apostasy is, is rejecting God. It's saying, I don't believe in you. I don't love you. I don't want to follow you. I'm going to go my own way. That's what apostasy is. And that is what, what Israel is doing in this chapter. Because if you remember, in the Old Testament, God brought his people out of Egypt. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And, and the rest of the Old Testament, like the refrain, continues again and again and again. The God who brought you out of Egypt. The God who delivered you from Egypt. The God who you from your slavery. And so they're, they're celebrating that that's who God is. That's the defining aspect of their relationship with him. And now they're saying, no, we're going to go back to Egypt. We think they can help us in the, in the face of Assyria coming to attack us. We think they can help us in this crisis that's happening in our land. So they're trying to trust in Egypt instead of him. So that's the, the first problem. The second problem is, is far more practical. And that's that this is just a bad strategic move. Politically, this doesn't make sense. 
reason why it doesn't make sense is because just 10 years before this, uh, Egypt made an alliance with the Philistines, who were one of the neighboring countries around, around Judah. They made an alliance with them, and they said, hey, Assyria is this big threat. So let's team up together, and then when Assyria comes to town, we'll be able to beat them together. And that's exactly what happened. Assyria came to town, uh, and Philistia said, hey, Egypt, we've got this alliance. Come help us out. And Egypt said, no. And Assyria wiped out Philistia. Ten years later, God comes to his people and says, hey, Assyria's coming, judgment's coming, you need to repent, you need to trust me. They say, no. We're going to align ourselves with these people who are very, very trustworthy. Even though we've seen that just ten years before this, they failed to come to Philistia's aid, they'll come to our aid. Because we're not Philistia. So they trust in Egypt, and God tells them what's going to happen. He says the protection of Pharaoh will turn to their shame in verse 3. The shelter of Egypt to their humiliation. Uh, even though his officials, his officials are Judah's, Jerusalem's. Uh, he, they've, they've already sent envoys to Egypt. So this is already happening. It's not don't go down to Egypt. It's you're going down to Egypt and it's wrong. So it's Egypt, his envoys are already at zone They've reached Haines. This is the, the Nile kind of river valley. So they're already at the doorstep of Egypt. He says, even though that's happened, it's going to come to shame. It's not going to profit them. And he gives this oracle on the beasts of the Negeb. The Negeb is the, the region that um, the envoys would have traveled from, from Judah to Egypt. So he's, he's talking about these animals that are in this desert on their way to Egypt. And he says, even though they're... Uh, they carry on their backs treasures. So they're sending them tribute. They're trying to pay Egypt to come to their aid. Even though that's happening, uh, he says, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. That's a good one, right? You guys all know Right? You don't use this insult on a regular basis with your friends and family. Rahab... We hear that and we probably think about, you know, the story in Joshua with the prostitute whose name is Rahab. But Rahab is a, is a kind of mythical monster in the ancient world that represented chaos. Uh, so is, is a kind of formidable thing in their culture. Um, it's like the boogeyman. Um, and it's often used as a symbolic name for Egypt because Egypt at one time was a kind of powerful, formidable enemy. But now they are Rahab who, who sits still, who doesn't do anything. And so Isaiah is kind of taunting Egypt with this, you know, 700 BC banter, uh, Rahab who sits still. So he's saying, like, your, your plan with them is going to come to nothing. It doesn't matter if you trust in them, it's not going to be fruitful, it's going to humiliate you, it's going to be shameful for you. So God calls Isaiah to witness in verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet. Inscribe it in a book. What, what, what book do you think that is that he inscribed it in? This one. It's the one we're reading. Inscribe in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. He's saying, I want people to know that what you're doing now is wrong, that you're rejecting me, you're going to be judged for it, and so we're going to document what's happening so that generation after generation after generation understands what's happening in Judah right now. 
That's why we can go back and we can talk about this. That's why we can read this book and learn from it because God told Isaiah to write it down. Why? Because they are a rebellious people. They're lying children. They're children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Verse 10, they they say to the seers, don't see. They say to the prophets, don't prophesy. They're, 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 They're failing to follow God. And even worse than that, they're telling the people that should have been their spiritual guides, don't guide us. Don't tell us what we don't want to hear. Instead, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. And then, verse 11, I think this is maybe the most damning verse on the leaders in Jerusalem in Isaiah. He says, leave the path. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. They're telling the prophets and the priests to go astray. They're telling them to lead them astray. Like They are commanding the people that should have guided the Lord to forsake him. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And then notice, as we read, how often after that point Isaiah uses that phrase again and again and again. Right? He's not going to listen to them. He's going to tell them the truth. He's going to speak God's message. And he's going to call God who he is. Verse 12, this is what's going to happen. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall. It's going to be like a wall that's been broken at the top and suddenly it's going to come crashing down. Then he gives us an analogy about a potter's vessel. It's going to be like a clay pot that has been smashed so ruthlessly that there isn't a piece left to hold water in. So it's just demolished. That's what's going to happen to them. Why? Verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, Egyptian horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. God, even at this point, is longing for them to repent. And they say no. They reject him to his face, pleading with them to avoid the judgment that's coming. And he says, all right, it's going to come. You're going to be left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, like a signal on a hill. He's talking about Jerusalem. Assyria, spoiler alert, is going to come. And they're going to devastate Judah. And pretty much the only thing that's going to be left is Jerusalem. And then comes verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself. He he rises himself up to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. This doesn't make any sense, right? This is, this is unexpected and surprising and counterintuitive. He's pleading with them. The whole book has been about how judgment is coming because they won't repent. And again and again and again, God's come to them and said, repent, trust in me. And they've said, no. They've said, we're going to go to Egypt. We're going to go to the people, the very people that you delivered us from. 
They're rejecting God. God says judgment's going to come. And then it says, therefore, because of all this, God waits to be gracious to you. He, He rises up to show mercy. That's crazy in the midst of pouring out on his people. God is longing. He's waiting. He's anticipating. He's on the edge of his seat, ready to rise up and pour out mercy on them the moment they repent and come back. Thank God that's who he is. Right? Thank God that at the moment that he caused us as individuals, to repent and and trust in Christ. He was there, ready to show us grace, despite the fact that up to that point in our lives, we had rejected him again and again and again. God waits to be gracious to us. And that should encourage us. Both because we know that's the only reason why we're saved. And also because we know that that's still who God is for the people in our lives, for the people in our neighborhoods, for the people in our family who haven't trusted in him yet, we know that he is a God who is waiting to show them grace and mercy. And for us, in our struggle with sin, we know that God is waiting to be gracious to us when we repent. And so, in your fight against sin, picture God like this. Picture God as being one who is on the edge of his seat waiting for you to repent, waiting for you to come back so that he can extend grace and mercy to you. And I think that'll make it a lot harder for us to keep sinning. It's not going to make it easy for us to take advantage of that grace when we picture him as one who willingly and eagerly longs to extend it to us. Despite all that Israel has done, despite the fact that that right now, at this point in history, they're on their way to Egypt, God is waiting to extend grace to them. And the rest of the passage is, is the working out of that grace. Listen to verses 19 through 21, 22. He says, For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more, for he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. So God tells them that that's who he is. He's the God who who waits to be gracious and he's going to spell it out for them what that's going to look like. As soon as they repent, he's going to be there. He's going to hear their cry and he's going to answer them. He's, He's waiting to be gracious and when they repent, he is gracious. Even though he's disciplined them, even though he's brought this judgment on them, he's going to be their teacher again. Right? He's going to show them the way. He's going to cause them to walk in it. The new covenant's going to come because the Messiah's going to come. He's going to teach his people who they're called to be. And the result, verse 22, is that they're going to defile their idols. They're going to cast them aside. They're going to scatter them as things that are unclean and say, be gone. They're going to get rid of the things that have been holding them back from worshiping him. And then 
verses 23 through 26, he's going to bring this new creation. He will give rain for seed. He will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder. That means that there's going to be enough grain left over that they're going to have plenty to just give to the animals. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the great day of slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold. So the moon's going to be brighter, the sun's going to be brighter. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow, one day God is going to heal all of our brokenness. He's going to take away our suffering. He's going to take away our grief. He's going to take away our pain. He's going to take away everything that's wrong about us and everything that's wrong about this world. And I think the end, that he's going to heal the wounds inflicted by his blow. As we think about God's discipline, which we kind of talked about some as we went through the book of Hebrews, and that it comes in our life and it's, it's, it's painful, it's unpleasant. We should remember that even though God disciplines us, sometimes in ways that are uncomfortable and painful, that, that, that one day... He's going to heal those uncomfortable and painful things. He's going to fix everything that's broken about us. And then in the rest of the passage, there's, there's two things happening. And I want, to, I want to describe them first before we read them, because I think this is, this is pretty important for us to get. Um, the two things that are happening is the first thing is that God is going to judge the people who haven't repented. He's going to pour out judgment on, on his enemies, the, the people uh, who, who aren't his people. And the second thing that happens in the rest of the passage is that God's people celebrate. They, they, they rejoice. They, they worship. They, they play tambourines as God pours out judgment. So listen, listen to this, and then we'll, then we'll talk about it. He says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the rock to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm of hailstorms. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod, and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandish arm, he will fight with them for a burning place he has long prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. So what's happening here is that God is going to pour out judgment, both in the near future on the Assyrians when they come to town uh, and in the distant future on, on everyone who has rejected God and rebelled against him uh, and, and failed to repent. And God's people celebrate. 
Right, I hope you notice kind of the difference between those two, two those verses, right? He's like fire and fury and brimstone and awfulness. You'll have a song in your heart like a flute when you go up the mountain. Like those, those things don't seem to fit together. They don't seem to go together. Like this, this whole week, I was thinking about that question. Like how, how can this be? How, how is it all right for us, for God's people to be like, tambourining it up while God is devastating other human beings created in God's image with judgment. And then I realized that I was missing something. You see, as I, as I thought about, about myself and how I would feel being in that place of celebration while judgment's happening, I was thinking about myself now. Now, I'm still broken. Now I still struggle with sin. Now I struggle with being happy when I see people that I don't like or don't agree with or who are bad people taken down and punished. Some of that probably is is a good thing. It's me being glad that God is just And he condemns people who hurt other people. But a lot of that is flesh. It's parts of me that haven't been sanctified out yet. But but then, after God comes and he binds up my brokenness, he makes me right, he takes sin away, then we will be able to celebrate in a way that isn't at all, not one minutia of 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 anything tainted by sin. Like, that's why this is okay. That's why it's okay for God's people at the end of all things to be celebrating when judgment is happening because all of our hearts will be made right so that we can celebrate the right things for the right reasons in the right way without any chance whatsoever that there's going to be sin in it. And I don't understand that because that's not who I am now. And that's not who you are now but we will be one day. And God, as we think about God being a God who is, who is waiting to be gracious, we should think about it in the context of the person who hasn't repented, uh, who hasn't trusted in Jesus yet. We should think about it in the, our context of maybe struggling with sin and, and, and not repenting yet. Uh, I, should all, I also think we should think about it in, in kind of the grand scheme of things. That God is waiting to be gracious once and for all. The New Testament tells us that he's he's not just slow to keep his promise. You know, I think that someone in every generation has said, like, this is going to be the generation that Jesus comes back, including the one in which the New Testament was written. God's people have been waiting and waiting and waiting, and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. But the Bible tells us that God's just not slow He's gracious, right? He's giving more and 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 more people a chance to repent. Every moment that goes by that he doesn't return and make all things right is a moment in which someone has a chance to repent. 
the Lord waits to be gracious. Not because he's slow to keep his promise. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to think about repentance, right? We talk about repentance a lot during the Lord's Supper, about how we need to prepare our hearts and and confess sin and repent of it, um, which is a good thing. Because Luther said that the Christian life is is a life of repentance. It's one in which we're always going to be repenting, right? Do I need to repent? Yes. Do I need to repent now? Probably. Uh, it's, it's an ongoing process of repentance. And so take some time. Uh, thank God that he is a God who is longing to be gracious to you. Confess your sins. Repent of them. And then remember that, that one day, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we will proclaim his death until he returns. One day, he's going to return, and then we won't need to repent anymore. I don't know what that's going to be like, but I want it to happen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who, who waits to be gracious to us. I pray that you would make us a people who are eager to repent. I thank you that you sent your son to make it possible for us to be recipients of your grace. And that it's not difficult. It's not hard. It's not complicated for us. You just ask us to trust in him. Pray that you would increase our faith and stir our affections for you and help us to be continually repentant and to be faithful to share the good news of the God who waits to be gracious.